It takes somebody with the sovereign ability of God to make people who are naturally at odds with one another one. It is a work of His Spirit. We strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity that the Spirit produces in the bond of peace. Just this week, we were uh, staff pastors, were on their annual retreat, uh, along with um, Kevin Priest, Cody Lehman, school administrators, and we, we did a number of things, but, but one of the things to me that was the greatest blessing is how we reflected on how God has united our hearts, the, the healthy relationships we have of mutual love, of respect, of accountability. Um, we know that that's, that's not something that just naturally happens. It's something that God has done. And we see that reflected not just in our pastoral leadership, but we see it uh, throughout the church family. And it's something that we regularly rejoice in. In fact, uh, every time I think about Hampton Park and every time I join with you on a day like today and watch people uh, interacting with one another, it just makes my heart want to sing to see what God has done because it's certainly a God thing. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our relationships. That's His very nature. It restores a loving relationship with God through Christ, and it produces loving relationships with one another. If it does not do so, we aren't holding on to the gospel. The gospel, by its very nature, is reconciling the world to God. Uh, by its very nature, is binding us together in the body of Christ. We've seen that the Apostle John taught us in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He makes it abundantly clear that if you're not living in love in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then John says you don't even know God. You don't even know who He is. When God is at work in us, His character begins to flow through us. So, Jesus' certain return that Joel preached about this last week is part of that gospel. That return, that soon return of Jesus, increases our active commitment to the mission that Jesus, the Savior King, has given to us. So, we who are children of the day and of the light, anticipating the Lord's return, are called to exercise vigilance, not to be sleeping, not to be self-indulgent, but to, to be awake and alert. This eager expectation uh, of that coming day then is not a passive sort of waiting. It's not like you're standing on the street corner looking at your uh, watch or your cell phone, wondering when Jesus is coming. You've, we have work to do. Um, this waiting for Jesus doesn't produce a neglect of one another. Uh, instead, it drives our faithful, beneficial service to those that are around us uh, here and now. In fact, Jesus actually tells parables to that end. It's the, the servants that forget that the Master is coming, that start mistreating their fellows. The ones that know that He's coming then feed the household and take care of them well. Well, Paul says as much in the last verse of what Joel preached to us last week. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul wrote, Therefore, in light of all this, being a, awake and alert, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Our certain destiny of living forever in the presence of the Lord Jesus motivates healthy one-anothering 
consistent with the Holy Spirit's transforming work in us. Think about it. In fact, I even saw somebody who's uh, deconstructed uh, make some snide remark about Christians have grossly overestimated how, I'll put it in the vernacular, how cool it would be to live forever with them. In other words, who wants to hang around this bunch? Well, someone who doesn't hold to the gospel doesn't, but somebody who loves Jesus does. And as the gospel works uh, in us, we, we want to be one anothering in the way that we should. And so, that's what Paul's going to address in verses 12 through 15. He describes what this looks like in a church family. Follow with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. <clears throat> we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Right in the middle of our paragraph this morning is this directive, be at peace among yourselves. And this command actually relates to both what went before it and what follows it. All the relationships within the body of Christ at Thessalonica, and for that matter, in any local church at any time, were to be characterized, are to be characterized by peace. That is as it should be, for the gospel itself is sometimes called the gospel of peace. We have peace with God and with one another through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, I've called this study this morning Relationships of Peace, and Paul addresses three major groups. In verses 12 through 13, we are to live at peace with those who lead, those who lead. In verse 14, with those who struggle, and finally in verse 15, with those who wrong you or who wrong us. So, let's consider first this instruction regarding having peace, a peaceful relationship with those who lead. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 once again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Paul's emphasis here is, is less on position than on the work that these members of the body do. And the New Testament is consistent on this score. The apostles consistently describe the pastor-elder overseers in terms of their character and their necessary labors for the sake of the flock of God. I mean, even in the terms that are used for this role, those terms themselves convey caring activity. Pastor is to shepherd and to feed and to care for the flock. Elder says that you're spiritually mature as an example for the flock. An overseer, you are a supervisor who knows well the state of your flock. Your eyes are on it, and you're taking appropriate action. In fact, this is used in the verb form for visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. In other words, you're paying attention to who people actually are, what their needs actually are, and then taking care of those needs. When their authority as teachers of God's Word is underscored, like in Hebrews 13, the New Testament couches that reality 
in the accountability that these individuals have before God to care for the flock that God purchased with his own blood. The flock, therefore, benefits from following their lead because of the kind of work they do before God. So, how is this work described? First note that it's described as those who labor among you. The term labor is usually used in a context of manual labor. Think about heavy-duty uh, sweat, uh, exhaustion, that work can be, and that is the kind of word that's used here. Serving as a spiritual leader in the flock of God is not just some high pinnacle position for people to give a man praise. It is labor-intensive, and it is among the members of the body. It's not isolated from them. It's not that you're sitting in some far-off room making decisions about the body. It's that you're moving among the body. You're laboring. You, you've jumped down in the ditch with them. You've rolled up your sleeves, and you're serving them, laboring alongside. Paul describes the nature of this toil, this labor uh, of his own ministry. In Colossians 1, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that's uh, practical skill in life, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, all that work, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The reality is that this kind of task is, is larger than a human being can shoulder. It takes God working through these men to make it happen. Sometimes men go into a ministry occupation thinking it will be an easy way to make a living. If that's what you're thinking, do something else, please. Nobody who takes seriously what the Scriptures say these men are supposed to be doing can go at it in a lazy way. I love the way John Calvin put it. He says, all idle bellies are excluded from the number of the pastors. So, uh, as we confront one another, those of you that serve in the pastoral body, if we're, if we're being idle bellies, we need to call one another out on that, because this is a labor among the flock of God. And then next it describes them as those that are over you. And literally this reads, they, they stand, it means to stand before you, to preside. It has the idea of taking the lead or to direct. It's not that these are super Christians and then there's the ordinary Christians. It's that their responsibility is to direct and to take the lead, like someone presiding uh, in a meeting. The term combines both leading and caring for those that the individuals lead. It was a very common term uh, used even in secular contexts, and it involved not just management and leading, but also caring for those that, were, that you are actually leading. And this is what uh, effective godly leaders must do. And you'll note that this is in the Lord. He says, those who are over you in the Lord. And that distinguishes them from merely political or, or civil leaders in the community. These are leaders in the church. They serve as under-shepherds of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Third description of what these leaders are to do is to admonish you. It means literally to put one in mind, to advise, to warn some of the most difficult work that spiritual leaders must do is to confront those who are doing wrong. 
And, and typically, those that are doing wrong, um, like the rest of us, we don't like being corrected. We never have. And human nature is never to like somebody to actually confront us about something that we're doing wrong, particularly if we're committed to doing wrong. Um, wayward sheep bite. And so they have this job, though, to admonish and to warn. And, you know, many who are in, in pastoral leadership-type ministry, they're, they're people persons. They, they love people. They, they want people to love them. And one of the hardest things that they have to do is to occasionally uh, get in their grill and, and confront them about things and to do it in an effective way, in a loving way. Um, and it, it's, it can churn your guts sometimes if you're anticipating having certain kinds of conversations. But it is part of the job description of what these men are to do. So the question is, how is the church family to respond to those who have this function in the body? Well, notice what Paul says, because of their work, they're to respect them and esteem them very highly in love. That word respect is, is interesting. It, it, it literally means to know them, to know them. We know that a pastor, elder, overseer is supposed to know the members of the flock. We have to keep, we keep working at that, and I don't know, uh, I don't know that there's a one of us that feel like we do it as well as we should. It's something we keep working at. But here, it's reversed. It says the flock is to know them. In other words, it's important to understand their true character and their God-given work, to appreciate who they really are and, and what they really do, because that's what will cause the relationship with these individuals to flourish within the church. Have you ever noticed how often our, our irritations and frustrations with people often come from our not knowing who these people really are and, and what they actually do? In fact, there's a, a long time I, I would often hear, what do all these pastors do? I, you know, thankfully, I don't think I've heard it in about 10 years. So I hope that means, I hope it means that people know what they do and not that they don't care. Now, but but we need to know those that are serving in this way so that our relationship is a peaceful relationship. And that's true of anybody. You know, often, you know, I don't know what it is about myself and about every other human being I know. When I lack information, I typically fill it in. Um, well, to, to use light and dark, I fill it in dark. I, I, I tend to, if I don't know, then it must be something bad, okay? And, and we want to try to assume the best until we know differently, but, but this is part of getting to know one another. It's easy to assign poor motives and poor performance to leaders we don't really know. So many leaders have proved disappointing in their personal lives, like you actually did find out about what was going on, or in their public service, that it's easy to become jaded and just to assume that any time a person goes into leadership, they're immediately, they're immediately suspect. The prevailing cynicism in our own culture about secular leaders can taint our attitudes even toward faithful, godly leaders in the church. But trust requires some measure of knowledge. It's nearly impossible to respect and trust those we don't really know. 
And so what we want to see develop, what ought to be, is a, a culture really of transparency, of accountability, of knowing one another, of, of, um, of having the kind of relationship where the doubts subside because we know who people are. You know, from time to time, um, there have been situations where, um, you know, I've gotten a, a letter or, or whatever about some individual, and um, I remember some years ago, and this person will know who I'm talking about because they're in the congregation, but um, I'm, I'm reading this letter about how horrible this person is, and, and I, I'm reading it and going, like, this isn't this person. It's, it's not that the person would never sin, but I'm going, I know this person, and, and if she were going to sin this way, she, she, she would not sin this way because it's not in line with who she is. And so I started, we started asking questions here uh, among the pastors and going like, wait a minute, now where is this report coming from? And, and sure enough, we found the report came from somebody who had ulterior motives for taking this missionary out. And, and as we followed up, um, we were able to get that cleared up, and, and sure enough, a lot of it was very much fabricated. Well, this protects us. You know, if people actually know you, it, it provides protection, and we need to know those that, that lead us. We want to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We highly value them because of what they do, and, and what they do is actually work that God Himself has assigned. It's vital to the health of the body of Christ, and it's to God that they will answer. Hebrews 13 says they lose sleep over the fact that they will answer for the flock. The Holy Spirit assigns to whom He will those who are to oversee and care for the church of God, purchased with the blood of Christ, according to Acts 20. And He does so because of Christ's love for His people. He, he gave Himself up for His people. This becomes the model for a husband uh, with his wife. Um, and according to Ephesians 4, these that lead in terms of teaching are to equip the saints for, now the, the saints are everybody that belongs to God. They equip the saints for the work of ministry, of serving, so that the whole body grows into Christ-like maturity in gospel truth and gospel love. This is the task. So you can see, if you pull that out, if you pull out those that are making the saints functional that way and are equipping people that way, then, then the church is going to uh, become less and less healthy. And we see this in the history of the church over the centuries, that when there's less attention to the Word of God, when those that are called to teach it faithfully are not doing so, then the whole church suffers the ill effect of that. We become unhealthy and diseased and corrupt, whereas when, when there is that faithful teaching and there is that uh, shepherding that's supposed to be happening, a life-on-life -life kind of shepherding that's described here, then you see health being restored. We grow to love those who give themselves the way true spiritual leaders do. Love for people shapes how we interact with them and how we work through misunderstandings. Love is not cynical or suspicious. It's not rude or slanderous. Love, love hungers for and is built on relationship. 
and, and it lets us function together in the way that we should. Paul and his fellow missionaries considered spiritual leaders a, a critical necessity for each local church they planted. According to Titus 1, he says, I want you to appoint elders there. Uh, and that was part of what was lacking. In Acts 14, 21 to 23, after the first missionary journey, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and, that, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Why would they say that? Why the tribulation, the affliction? Well, you remember that, that Paul was stoned and left for dead, dragged outside the city. And so these believers needed to know, yeah, it's going to cost you something to serve Jesus, but this is, this is part of what following Jesus involves. Many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The, the apostles quickly, you know, as they won people to the Lord and they taught them, they quickly established leaders among them who would continue to shepherd them and continue to teach the Word and continue to care for them the way the apostles themselves would want to. Because all these churches couldn't be dependent on this, just the apostle Paul or, or Barnabas or, or really, quite frankly, any of the other people that traveled with him because it's just not possible to be spread that thin. There had to be a multiplying of the leaders and, and each church needed uh, leaders that were looking after them this way. And so when we think about our relationship to our leaders in our own, our own local body, what are ways that you can get to know the spiritual leaders who labor to shepherd you. Now, I know that a lot of you, a lot of you already do know them well. I think we work at this from both ends, but it's something we can keep growing in where, and they, they should be working to get to know you. You want to be working to get to know them. And, and how can you grow your love for those who serve in this way despite their flaws? You know, one of the things that happens when you get to know people Okay, they're like the people you live with, right? Okay, you, you get to know their flaws. But that's okay because they need you. They need you to be, um, be influential. And you're marking them like iron on iron. You're, you're going to actually help them with some of their flaws. And it's like, like with your kids. You know, you see the flaws in your kids. And uh, how many of you parents, as you deal with the problems that your kids manifest, you start going, uh that's me. Ah, uh, did that just come out of my mouth, how to fix that? Uh, maybe I need to look in the mirror and tell myself that just as strongly as this told my, my son or my daughter, right? Isn't this, I mean, I'm not so sure that parenting's about rearing kids. I think it might be about rearing parents, right? I mean, we're going to talk about that more tonight. We, we, as we have this interaction, we help one another. It's not that any of us are flawless. But because we're not flawless, we need we need the interaction, and, and we need the love. When you intercede for these men, what petitions would tend toward growing their capacity to care for the flock? The reality is, at least the men that I know that serve here, there's not a one of them that, that does not, while, while they believe God has called them to this, and they believe that God has given them gifts to function in this way, there's not one of them that feels personally adequate to fulfill this. 
in the way that, that God has called them to do it. They, we pray for you. We go through the congregation um, in our monthly uh, pastoral body meetings. We pray through alphabetically. We pray through uh, the members of the congregation. But let me encourage you to pray for these men because they are but men. They do have feet of clay. They do have their own struggles. They do have their own sins. And you want to be praying for them. And, and what, how could you pray in a way that would make them stronger in what they do for the sake of the flock and the glory of Jesus? And then, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, what's the most difficult thing in terms of interaction? I think it's this admonish part, okay? So, what is your normal response when a spiritual leader warns you in some way? Now, I, I do that a fair amount from um, the pulpit, and, and in some ways it's a le- little easier to take that way because you keep your anonymity, okay? You might wonder, was he there this morning at breakfast? Like, how did... And, and chances are that's just, you know, God had me turn the phrase in a way where, you know, he opened your heart to that. You know, take that as from the Lord. But I think more difficult is, is when it's a face-to-face meeting. It's more difficult for both parties. Um, but, but all of us, all of us, if we're to grow, need, need to be open to having other people in our lives. People that we know love us and care for us. Other people that, that would confront us. And in fact, this is something that has led to greater unity among the leaders. And we, we regularly tell each other, look, you see something in my life that is troubling to you, or you, you, a red flag goes up or whatever, please, please, please talk to me about it. In other words, we want to give permission ahead of time. Talk to me. Um, let me know, because I don't, want, I don't want that to be in the way of our relationship, or I don't want that to be in the way of of how we're serving. This is the kind of relationships that help, help us grow together in the Lord. And we pray for these kinds of things on Sunday night regularly. You know, the, the culture-shaping prayers that we do, uh, praying for God to help us use our liberties well, and for God to help us encourage one another with Scripture, and, and for God to help us uh, not ignore sin, but to deal with one another's sins with, with forbearance and love. So, this relationship of peace needs to be a relationship of peace with those who lead. And then, verse 14, we want to have a relationship of peace with those who struggle. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You'll note that once again, he underscores brothers. He said that in the first part. He says it in this verse. Brothers, remember we're part of a family. And, And so, what follows is not just what leaders are supposed to do. You look at some of these and say, oh, well, that's, that's the pastor's job. That's the deacon's job. That's the Sunday school teacher's job. No, this is what all members of the body of Christ are to be doing. Every one of us must be looking out for our brothers and sisters who are struggling. Leaders are not to monopolize ministries, but rather to multiply them. I love the way John Stott put that in his commentary. They are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to one another, according to Ephesians 4, what we just looked at. 
Well, what are we to be doing with those? Who are the ones that struggle? He gives some classes of people that struggle. First, admonish the idol. We've seen this word before. It's the word that was used for the leaders. They're supposed to warn uh, people. Uh, put in mind, warn those. Uh, who are the idol? Literally, the disorderly, the, like a soldier that's out of rank or an army in disarray. We're, we're confronting individuals that are out of line. And that's hard. That's hard for us to do. Um, you know, I think part of what makes it hard is some people uh, are, are just like born nitpickers, and they're always criticizing other people, and they're always nailing them for this and that and the other. Um, and we don't want to be part of that because we, we rightly identify that as a divisive, slanderous kind of person. This is different. This is actually... Um, this is kind of language that's used for a family, like father with children or leaders with the flock. It, it, it's, it's easy for us to try to avoid possible conflict, but true love for others will not let us ignore them when they're in trouble. Okay? And, and sometimes you just get hints at that. You can start with questions. You don't have to be making statements about how you know their motives and that kind of stuff, because you don't. But but if you, if you pick up that there's some difficulty, sometimes, sometimes when we see there's a difficulty, it's like, oh, I might catch that germ, stay away from me, right? And, and rather, when we see the difficulty, we want to, to reach out to these people. We want to admonish those that, that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, this idleness. Um, this is enough of a problem that in 2 Thessalonians, this is actually going to be uh, a church discipline offense. Somebody that, that wasn't working, uh, was idle, uh, wasn't doing what they're supposed to be doing for whatever theological reason or another reason, uh, he says, look, if they don't work, they don't eat. And, and you need to warn them because they're not living the way Christ has saved us to live. And then second group, encourage the faint-hearted. Come alongside the worried, the discouraged, the fearful. Come alongside them to comfort and exhort them and to, to urge them on. And we all have different personalities, and some are more resilient than others. We all have different circumstances. And at times, some of our number, at any time really, some of our number are going through multiple trials all at once. None of us can know everything a person is facing but all of us can show compassion to one another by encouraging those who are beat down and worried and fearful. You know, if you'll make a practice of when you are moving among people or as you're talking to people, of looking them in the eye and, and observing them, um, observe facial expressions, observe uh, body language, you'll pick up a lot of times, and some of them put on a brave face and you would never know anything, you know, no difference whatsoever. Everything's going great. Um, but, but most people, there's little hints. If you know them well, there's little hints that, that life is tough on them right now. And, and we want to come alongside people like that. Uh, you might notice somebody who's, who's very much off by himself or herself in a congregation like this, not interacting with anybody. Chances are you're, you've got somebody who is faint-hearted, somebody who's going through a, a horrendous time, and they need somebody to come alongside. 
And then, and then the third category, help the weak. The word help has the idea of holding on firmly to those without strength, to, to cling to them, to even put your arm around them, to help them along, like a, like a thoughtful teenager would take hold of a grandmother to help her walk across a street or, or down some steps. And Paul seems to be referring not so much to those that are physically weak, we get that image, but as to those that are actually spiritually weak. Could be new believers, could be backslidden brothers or sisters, it could be those that have fallen prey to some sin. We don't ignore brothers and sisters who are struggling. We don't beat them up or or berate them. We do all we can to help them. So, when we see somebody who is weak, when we see somebody who is uh, in trouble spiritually, overtaken in a fault, uh, you that are spiritual, you that are led by the Spirit of God, you're going to restore those people in the spirit of meekness. You're not going to leave them alone. You're not going to push them down and drown them. You're going to try to rescue them. We dare not be dismissive of the believer who is down or the believer who's drifting, or the one who's faltering. These believers are vital to the body, and we need them, and they need us. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this. In verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Can you imagine what would happen if your head had a roll everywhere you go instead of your feet carrying you there? Um, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This only makes sense. I mean, it it would be like having a hospital only for well people. The the point of the hospital is for people that are in trouble, that are sick, that, that need help. And so when you see somebody that needs help, you see somebody that needs to be studied, you see somebody that's that's drifting or drowning, then that's a call. That's a call to all of us to do what we can do, to grab hold of that person, to help them. It might be getting together for coffee or a Bible study. It might be a a text, just an encouraging word. It it could be a a conversation. I mean, when we all gather together like we do here, one of the things we want to be doing is, hey, hey, how'd that job interview go? Or, hey, uh, good to see you back. So how long did the flu last for you? And, um, you know, let people know that you're praying for them and you, you care about them. Um, check in on them if you know that they've been struggling. And then for all of these categories of people, be patient or long-suffering with them all. Um, the word patient, often translated long-suffering, um, think of it as this, long-temperedness versus short-temperedness. If you've got a short fuse then you're not under the control of the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit includes long-suffering. 
Okay? And that can be hard at times, particularly some kinds of sins really get under our craw. I mean, they, under our saddle, I just mix my metaphors. Uh, stick in our craw under our, our saddle. Um, <laughs> sorry. The burr in your throat, right? <laughs> you know what I mean. You know, some things don't bother me that much. Other things, uh, they get my dander up. I don't know. It pulls up my PTSD or something. I don't know. Um, but, but we need to be long-suffering. It, it, look, it's going to take time. Anybody that's struggling, it's going to take time. Helping those that are struggling takes endurance. It takes grace. Helping them takes effort. And healing takes time. Christianity is not about trying to look better than we are. It's about helping one another where we really are. So all of this depends on really really knowing one another and being aware of what the needs are and then saying, you know what, I'm all in in trying to help. So who, who are the individuals that you know are idle, faint-hearted, or weak? You know, probably if you're paying attention, there probably are people you could, you could put in most of these categories. What are their names? And how are you warning them or encouraging them or, or holding on to them so that they make it? How could you show long-suffering to brothers and sisters like these? And there's something beautiful about the steadfast love that people have for one another. That's God's characteristic. His steadfast love endures forever. Um, I'm toward the end of the Psalms again, and this reading about that this morning. You know, in all these ways, God shows his, his never-ending, His steadfast love, His loving loyalty that issues in kindness toward His people. Well, His people have that same kind of quality. And and to know you're among a people that will hang in there with you. You're among a people that aren't just using you, but who love you. You're among a people who won't abandon you in the fight. You're among a people who won't forget who you are or what you carry. That's a beautiful thing. It's something the gospel produces in people. And it's something that we want to nurture, a relationship of peace with those who struggle. And then, finally, with those who wrong you. See that no one repays, this is verse 15, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I mean, look at the always and the everyone. And this is, like, this is, you know, there are, there are different tactics for different situations. This is like, okay, this is the one-size-fits-all, Okay? Evil refers to harmful behavior. And, and listen, this church knew what it was like to get a faceful of harmful behavior. That church was born in that kind of environment. Persecution so great that it drove the missionaries out of the city and hounded them into other cities. And, and they were living with that. In fact, part of the reason that Paul is writing to them is his concern for them, that they survive the, this fire that's been unleashed against them. To repay people evil for evil is our natural reaction. We want to strike back. But that is not what we've learned from Christ. 
And there are things that we know about how God is operating in the world that, that helps us be able to re- restrain ourselves from the natural human response. Because we know that nobody is getting away with anything. There will be a payment exacted for sure because God is the judge and He will repay. We can turn over whatever vengeance we might feel in our hearts to Him. He can take care of it perfectly, and He will. Either such evil workers will repent and trust in Jesus as the one who's borne the wrath of God on their behalf, just as the rest of us have, or they will pay. There are built-in consequences for evil behavior. Even if in this life there seems to be little payback, eternity in the lake of fire will be entirely sufficient. I don't have to add a thing. God doesn't need me to do His job as judge of the universe. Christ Jesus is coming back, and He will deal with all evil and will do so perfectly and completely. So, I can leave that to God, that's job, God's job description. Instead, I will always pursue doing good. Just like a hunter pursues whatever he's hunting, we're going to pursue what's morally right and therefore beneficial to other people. That, that term good suggests that there is a higher law established by God Himself, that His definition of what's right drives our behavior, and including our response to evil done against us. The circumstance or the wrong done is not king of your life. God is. That helps us stay consistent in what we do and what we say. We're not just reacting. We are proactively pursuing, doing whatever God defines as right. Sometimes that means you have to admonish and warn. I'm not talking about passivity. I'm talking about doing right. And toward whom do we behave this way? Toward one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and toward everyone. I'm reminded of Jesus' answer to who is my neighbor I'm supposed to show love to. And he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here you have an individual that crossed all kinds of cultural lines and prejudices, and helped a person in great need, at great expense to himself. He did what Jesus would do, and Jesus has done. He did what those who follow Jesus must do. If we do good only to those who do us good, what kind of righteousness is that? Where is Jesus Christ who came to save sinners in that kind of living? And how can we possibly advance the gospel among sinners If we are seeking revenge, or what hope can we possibly have for ourselves since we are sinners too? We have hope only because Jesus rescued us from the wrath that we deserve. And this has has to shape the way we think about the wrongs done to us. So what resentments do you harbor that make you want to retaliate? How could you overcome the evil done against you with good? 
That doesn't always mean just making cookies. Sometimes it's more complicated than that. But it, it can't be just, I'm going to pay them back. You know, this happens in a marriage, doesn't it? One of you does the other wrong, and that, that hurts bad. And you nurse that grievance over the years, and more of them pile up. And then pretty soon, like, it's just like tit for tat. Like, we're, gonna, we're duking it out here. You're going to pay rather than actually doing good. Somebody's got to turn the tide. To what believers or unbelievers do you need to show positive kindness? Jesus is coming back soon. If he were to inspect your life today, what would he find the health of your relationships to be? With those who lead, with those who struggle, with those who wrong you. God, help us live lives consistent with the gospel for the glory of Jesus and the advance of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thanks. Thank you for this immensely practical passage that, that deals with categories of folk that sometimes can be our most difficult to get along with. And I pray that we might live out your truth, that you would grant us the wisdom and the grace, the long-suffering, the love we need to, to live in a way that's wise and that's helpful. Um, Lord, help our relationships not to be surface relationships, but to, to actually be, have the fullness that's described here. And God, I, I pray you'd help, help us especially help those that are struggling. Um, Lord, we pray that none of them would fall through the cracks. We pray that we might show them your deep compassion and, and be of true help to them. And Lord, may that extend to our whole community as we know there are many that need the Lord Jesus and need to see his love. For it's in Christ's name we pray.